0: Well, hi, thanks so much for joining us. So excited to wrap up this series looking at these invisible routines our habits, invisible routines that shape our lives. And today we're gonna start with uh, God's word through James uh, in James chapter five. These are really the last uh, few sentences of his letter to these ancient Christians who were dispersed all over the world. So uh, join me in James five, chapter 13. I'm sorry, James chapter five, verse 13. Uh, And here we go. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. produced its crops. This is God's word. So, um, you know, as I've been reflecting on this passage, I've been thinking a lot about uh, before and after pictures. You, you've seen these. They're all over the internet. Uh, there's before and after pictures that advertise skin products, uh, that advertise diet uh, programs, uh, fitness plans, uh, fitness apps, their before and after pictures that advertise and get us hooked to do all sorts of things. But the champions, in my opinion, the champions of the before and after picture uh, comes to us from Chip and Joanna Gaines, who hosts the show Fixer Upper. I know you've seen this. You've got these photos of these incredibly dingy houses that were miraculously turned into these beautiful homes and the landscaping is transformed. The siding looks different. Everything looks so cool. And then you go inside and you can see like kitchen remodels and bathrooms that just make your jaw drop to the floor. Uh, the before and after photo is a super powerful, uh, thing that gets us hooked. And, um, you know, we also, we see before and after photos in a way in, in people's lives. Like, do you know someone whose life is like a before and after photo? You know, maybe you knew them before and their life was kind of a mess and you know them now and you're like, dude, how did you do that? Like, what happened? I was reading um, this book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg and he tells a story of someone whose life is really like a before and after photo. Her name is uh, Lisa Allen at the age of 30. She'd been a smoker and a drinker since she was 16. So over half her life She struggled with obesity. Um, She wasn't really great with money, kind of impulsive. And so in her mid-20s, she had collection agencies coming after her for over $10,000 in credit card debt. Uh, Get this, her longest stint at any job until she was 30 was less than one year. And to make it even more tragic, her husband had left her for another woman. Talk about a painful time in her life. And in her pain, she started stalking her ex-husband, calling up his girlfriend and hanging up real quick when she would answer. And she would even get drunk and go to uh, his girlfriend's house and bang on her door. When she was in a dark, dark place. Maybe you know someone or maybe you've been in a place like that. And so in desperation, uh, Charles Duhigg writes and says that uh, she maxed out her credit cards and went to Cairo, Egypt, which is where she always wanted to go. And she got there and she was just super disoriented, so disoriented that the morning uh, after she got there, she was jet lagged. She reached for a cigarette to light it and didn't realize until she smelled the burning plastic that she was trying to light a pen, not a cigarette. And it was at that moment that her whole world just crashed down. She said um, she felt helpless, depressed, and angry all at once and lying there in bed she said i felt like everything i'd ever wanted was crumbled and i couldn't even smoke right that was her before picture fast forward four years just four years she's 34 years old she hadn't had a cigarette in four years she no longer drank she had lost 60 pounds her interviewers and friends say that she looked 10 years younger Uh, she had run a marathon (laughs) <laughs> she had a master's degree. Her, her transformation was so shocking and so fast that she drew uh, attention from psychologists and researchers from the National Institute of Health. And they interviewed her, they installed cameras in her house to monitor her habits, they watched her vital signs and they asked her all sorts of questions, all to find out the, question, the answer to the question that you and I are wondering right now. Man, what happened to Lisa? What happened? You know, what, what happened in her life that, that in created this incredible transformation? How did she do that? Because what a before and after picture does is it, it gives you a glimpse at the life, but what it doesn't do is tell you about the lifestyle. And and so researchers who got to know Lisa uh, discovered that what what had happened, um, a lot of you are thinking she became a Christian and, and maybe, I don't know, uh, but Uh, the researchers who studied her life, the scientists and the neurologists and sociologists, they said that what happened is she made a key to just one habit, what they call the keystone habit. And uh, what she did is she, every time she felt like she wanted to smoke, she went for a, a run. That was it, that one thing. And then over the next six months, Charles Duhigg writes, she would replace smoking with jogging. And that in turn changed how she ate worked, slept, saved money, scheduled her work days, planned for the future, and so on. A keystone habit, uh, Charles Duhigg writes, uh, they start a process that over time transforms everything. It's like a super habit. And it's like the first domino in a line. And by changing just one habit, we change simultaneously 10 other habits at the same time. And as a pastor, I get to sit with people as they tell me about their life before Christ and their life in Christ. And it's, it's really amazing to hear about these before and after stories. Maybe you've had a chance to hear some of these. They're so encouraging. And like, like my family, before Christ, a couple generations back, if you would have captured where we were, you would have seen um, alcoholism. You would have seen affairs and broken marriages. You would have seen child abuse, depression, suicidal tendencies, anger. But now what you see isn't a perfect picture, but it's a, a picture where the norm is sobriety, faithfulness in marriage, uh, where the home is not a place to vent at each other, but to protect each other. And all, all of that because there's this deep rootedness in the love of God through a connection, a, a real vital connection with God through prayer and a wise person would ask, how, how do these stories happen? And what can I learn from them? And that's the question we're asking as we come to James, uh, th- these last few sentences is in James. See, because he's writing to this church that's really struggling. They're, they're struggling. They're, all, they're spread out all over uh, the Middle East. And he wants to show them the one thing, the one keystone practice or habit that they must do today that will change everything for them. And he begins by showing them kind of the before picture, the before picture. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but the before picture includes trouble and sickness and sin. So let's get into this. First, trouble. He said, is anyone among you in trouble? Is anyone in your church, in, in your uh, Christian fellowship, your Christian community, experiencing trouble, which is harm or it can be emotional pain? And James's readers, they would have been experiencing all sorts of trouble. Trouble from the outside, there was like uh, political and cultural pressure on them because when you start saying that a Jewish man who was dead is now alive and we need to orient everything we do around what he commanded and what he said, you're going to get trouble from the outside. There was trouble from inside the camp and there was, there was like infighting and tension. There was... Um, uh, a lot of poverty and some of the families just couldn't make ends meet. And, and if you've ever experienced need, like financial need uh, or you know, need for health or whatever, you know that there's a lot of anxiety that comes from that. So there's like emotional trouble and maybe you know what that's like. I mean, just think about the trouble you've experienced this week. And James, his question uh, echoes to us even now, is anyone among you in trouble that's part of the before picture. But it, then he goes on. He says, is anyone among you sick? In verse 14, are you sick? And sickness here, the commentators say, definitely does include physical sickness. So for people living in the first century uh, in Palestine or the Roman Empire, I mean, just think about simple diseases, diseases that we don't really consider a serious threat now, like typhoid or chicken pox. They were common and they were deadly. Uh, Historians uh, will tell us of of like entire city populations that were decimated by these simple diseases in days before vaccines or you know what we know as uh, as hygiene uh, and and where food and water was contaminated. Uh, So sickness, like physical sickness, was a serious problem, and it's I mean still is for us today, but even more then, and. One of the things that the commentators all say is that when James writes sickness, the Greek behind that could also very well mean just kind of being weak, uh, exhausted, or like to have fatigue. So it includes things like spiritual and emotional immaturity. So James is saying, is anyone among you like emotionally immature? Like you, don't, you don't know how to discern what people say. You don't know which direction to go. Um, uh, is there anyone with weak willpower? So like, you know, there are people, uh, maybe you, you feel like you're just caught in this kind of spin cycle of temptation and sin. Uh, those people are included. Or, or it could just be like doubt and skepticism. Are you weak in your faith, you know? Uh, do you have emotional weakness? So depression and hopelessness just because of the beat down of life. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uses the same word, but it's translated uh, as people becoming, quote, weary and, quote, losing heart. Are you, are you sick? Are you troubled? Are you sick? Is anyone among you, uh, James goes on, uh, do you have sin in verse 15? There are people who have sinned. Now sin, of course, um, if you talk to people outside the church and even some inside the church, I see this happening more and more with kind of the under 40 crowd is that we kind of chuckle when we talk about sin. And just to prove my point, I mean, just picture yourself turning to the person next to you and with your most serious judgy face uh, and voice saying, you have sinned. I mean, just try it. If you have a second, you could put me on pause. It's hard not to laugh, right? Uh, now, of course, we, don't, we know it's not a joke. Uh, we know that sin is real. Uh, and the, the, the issue isn't that, like, is, is sin real or not? Everybody believes in sin. You don't even have to be a Christian to believe in sin. The, the issue is, what is sin? Who gets to tell us what sin is and what sin isn't? And people who come under the authority and the loving uh, teaching of God's word are going to uh, shape uh, their morals, their ethics around what God defines as sin, which is wrongdoing. It's falling short. It's uh, one of my favorite ways of putting it is vandalizing the, the goodness of God's creation with our attitudes and our words. I mean, just, just think about what child abuse does. That's sin. Think about what, what racism and slavery have done. That's sin. Think about what lying and and slander has done. Think about what lying has done to members in the law enforcement community. It's sin. Think about all the things that are holding us back from true shalom, true peace, the way the world was meant to be. That's sin. And, And that's a part of this before picture. Trouble, sickness, and sin. Does any of this resonate with you? You know, are you just tired of in, in some ways, the world the way the world is? Are you sick? Are you emotionally exhausted? Do you feel like temptation has you on a spin cycle and you can't get out of it? Um, recently, I was reading about uh, Chernobyl, which, uh, as you probably know, in 1986, it was this horrible example of the worst possible outcome. From nuclear fallout. So there's a a nuclear uh, meltdown at Chernobyl uh, and it leaked the equivalent of 400 Hiroshima bombs worth of of radiation into the atmosphere. 100,000 people were evacuated. They left their homes and most of their possessions. The animal population was decimated. Trees, there was so much radiation that, that entire forest literally just corroded and fell apart. It's awful. And if you go there now, it, it's pretty bleak, pretty depressing, abandoned buildings. And you, you see like schoolrooms that are just, uh, it, it's terrible, it's just disheartening. But here's an amazing thing that biologists are starting to notice is that over the past several years, there's actually been this astonishing and really breathtaking surge of biodiversity and th- this whole exclusion zone this death zone around the power plant. Like life is coming back to the death zone. There are trees and plants. There are herds of like wild horses even, uh, wild hogs and moose and wolf. And it's pretty amazing to see what's happening. Now, scientists say it's not gonna be ready for humans to, to you know, live there for another uh, few centuries or so conservatively. But it's this beautiful picture of, of life in a death zone life in a dead zone. And with that in mind, I think that's a helpful picture to have as James begins to describe the after picture. What can happen because of life with Christ, what we're destined for. He says that we we can be happy and healed and forgiven. This is is what eternal life is supposed to look like. First, happy, that that he even says in verse 13 uh, that we can become happy enough to sing, to sing. And, and here's the, the thing about happiness. Uh, it's actually a rare word in the Greek. It usually means to be encouraged or cheerful. It only occurs a few times in scripture. But uh, it's interesting that, that where we see this happiness come out is in really surprising places. Like uh, in Acts chapter 27, Paul is a slave Uh, Paul the apostle, he's he's a slave. He's on a ship with other slaves and slave owners. Uh, And the ship is about to go down because of this terrible storm. I'm sorry, he wasn't a slave. He's more of a political prisoner. Anyway, uh, there was this terrible storm. Everybody was freaking out on the boat and the boat was about to go under. And Paul said, but I urge you to keep up your courage. That's the same word that James uses to describe happiness. Happiness because not one of you will be lost um, on the ship that's going to be destroyed. So what James is saying is we should fully expect that even in a place filled with sickness and sin and fear and anxiety, that practicing the way of Jesus, practicing these keystone habits, is going to deeply anchor you in a joy, the kind of joy that transcends your circumstances. And the places you go, you expect to see death and deadness. Those toxic radiation zones that you're going to see life because of uh, people following the way of Jesus. And when he says, let them sing psalms of praise, he literally means let let them psalm. Let them psalm. And so this is why we sing. We encourage our hearts. We build each other up. As we sing, and and he says more than that, it, it, you know, there's more than just happiness. There's also health. There's healing that can happen. Uh, in verses 15 and 16, he said, "The sick person will be made well. The Lord will raise them up." And he says, uh, "You know, you go to the elders and anoint the head with oil, which is just a symbol of blessing and um, and like um, uh, sanctifying, like setting apart, that you may be healed." may be healed and that's a part of it that like healed means restored or cured made well freed from the sickness and the illness and the injury whether it's spiritual or emotional or physical or trauma in your past that that uh, that healing is is a part of this after picture with christ And this is such a powerful part of the after picture. Uh, This kind of healing is explicitly mentioned over 30 times in the New Testament. We read uh, that like over and over again as Jesus is walking around, if you read in the gospels, announcing the kingdom, he's healing people. Luke uh, uh, chapter six puts it, just in in a breathtaking way. He says, as Jesus is walking around as the prototype of this new kingdom, this new age, a symbol of eternal life, it says that power was coming out of him and healing them all. Isn't that incredible? Power was coming out of them and healing them all. And, you know, it's tempting to read this passage in James and go, so is healing a promise? Like, does everybody get healed? Or is it more kind of a general principle? And I I think probably the answer is yes. We don't understand God's timing always, some of us. We pray for healing. Uh, There are people that Jesus, you know, could have healed in the gospels, but he didn't for some reason in God's wisdom. But we do know at the end of the story that stepping into the kingdom of God, stepping into the way of Jesus is stepping into a way of healing and restoration. And then he and then James says that part of the after picture is being forgiven, being forgiven. You know what that feels like? You know we talked about sin a little bit ago. F- being forgiven it, it, it's, it's when someone looks at you and when they could or when they should judge you or condemn you or cancel you, then instead of doing that, they forgive you, they take pity on you uh, a few years back, I, would, I was regularly meeting with a friend of mine. He was a pastor. We would meet for coffee and, and every week we would just kind of share our hearts. hearts. We, and we get really honest with each other. And, you know, there's a really safe, trusting relationship. And um, I remember the first time I overslept because we met at six o'clock in the morning. The first time I overslept and I, I woke up thinking everything was fine. And then I saw the text from him. Maybe you've gotten texts like that. And he's like, hey man, I'm here. Hope you're okay. It's Like, oh no, you know, I felt terrible and I apologized and said, I'll never do that again. I'll always set my alarm. And we could just kind of put that in the category of mistake, you know? And, and then the following week, you guessed it, it happened again. I, I left him hanging again. And now we had a problem. Now he had a problem because um, this wasn't a mistake anymore. I mean it's not like I was trying to do it, but there's something there was a kind of carelessness that is set in. And and he was hurt. And I knew it and I felt terrible. And there's nothing I could do. I couldn't make it up to him. I couldn't explain it away. But he forgave me. He forgave me. And Forgiveness—the forgiveness of God—it flows out of God's heart of pity towards sinners. This heart of pity. There's this beautiful paraphrase um, that I got from Dallas Willard's book, *The Divine Conspiracy*, of uh, Psalm chapter 103. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, "But as the Father, as a Father, pities His children, so the Lord pities us. He knows what we are made of, and and remembers." that we're dust. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he reward us in proportion to our wrongdoings. You know, we we have to walk through consequences of sin and our choices, no question. But God's forgiveness is that he spares us from the condemnation and the canceling and the hell that we deserve, that we create for ourselves. This is why in Psalm 32, we read, blessed, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven and that's God's great gift to us this this forgiveness that and not only did he give us forgiveness but he took on himself our shame and our punishment so james has been giving us this before picture and this and this after picture this portrait of a people who are being shaped by God into a new humanity who, as he wrote in uh, James chapter 1, who are mature and complete, not lacking anything, which could be translated, uh, he's shaping us into a people who are fully functional. We've maximized our God-given potential. We're no longer hindered or harmed by fatigue and disease and, and sin and habits that hold us back. I mean, what would you be like as a fully functional version of yourself? How how different would your family be? How how much more powerful would our church be? Our government, man. See, this isn't cheap talk. This isn't idealism or, you know, um, kind of like you know, pie in the sky stuff. This is what God is doing. He's he's taking us through these trials that strengthen us and he wants to bring us into connection with his spirit in order to renew us, transform us so that we can be part of his renewing work in the world. In John 17 verse three, Jesus says that eternal life is this, knowing God which is not just intellectually understanding him as if that's possible. It's experientially connecting with him, knowing who he is through uh, an ongoing conversation of prayer and confession, taking in what is true and good in his word. He calls this abiding in the vine in John 17, which is this beautiful picture of branches who are sustained and who bear fruit because they're connected to this root, Uh, which is christ drawing nutrients and power from him and so james he he tells us about these two keystone habits for stepping into this community this community where god is is a trinity father son and holy spirit loving one another since before time began like stepping into that with two things And he he says what they are in verse 16. He says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. That's how we move from the before picture to the after picture. Two keystone habits, confession and prayer. So with our last few minutes, I'm just gonna talk about these two things. So when we talk about confession, there's like a short-term goal um, and there's a long-term goal. So confession begins with talking to God about who you really are. You don't need to wait to do that. You could stop this video and do that right now. Talking to God about who you really are because he knows, he knows. Uh, James said in, in verse 13, is anyone in trouble? Let him pray, let him talk to God. Is anyone happy? Let him sing, sing to God. Like if you've ever maybe seen a counselor, a really good counselor is not just gonna tell you what to do and give you advice. What they're gonna do is get you to really articulate what's happening in you, to put a name on your emotions, on your struggles, uh, on your, your, your feelings and your habits. Like I'm depressed. Like just saying it, there's power there, isn't there? I'm scared, I'm scared about my marriage. I'm worried about losing my job struggling with this habit i can't seem to break and the sign of a strong and healthy friendship is that these two there are two people they can talk about who they really are without fear of being canceled and and that's that's a part of it coming to god telling him who we really are that's the short-term thing the long-term thing is it just takes time it takes time to build the kind of trusting relationships we need with one another because the long-term thing is, to, is that confession grows as we foster trusting relationships with each other. It doesn't happen right away, but it's a direction that we move in. James says, confess your sins to one another. This means talking about our sicknesses and our doubts and our weaknesses and our addictions, like what we have done to vandalize what is good The the goodness that God has created. Uh, Dallas Willard, Willard, who writes extensively about confession, says, we let trusted others, that's key, trusted others know our deepest weaknesses and failures. We lay down what he calls the burden of hiding and pretending, which normally takes up such a dreadful amount of human energy. We get real with ourselves and with each other. Richard, Richard Foster, who wrote um, a Celebration of the Disciplines, writes, We are sinners together. He's talking about people in the community of faith. We're sinners together, and in acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. So, my question to you is Is there anyone who really knows you? Is there anyone? Who really knows you? And then prayer. And prayer is really, this basic definition, I'm leaving out a lot of stuff, but a really basic definition of prayer is that it's asking God to do something that we cannot do on our own. John Calvin calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. John Calvin, the, the, one of the great reformers. Michael Reeves in his excellent short book on prayer called Enjoy Your Prayer Life, which is an amazing idea. Highly recommend his book. He writes, commenting on Calvin's definition, he writes, in other words, prayer is the primary uh, way true faith expresses itself. And this also means that prayerlessness, so not praying, is practical atheism, demonstrating a lack of belief in God. And here's the reality, you guys. We wake up every day and there's a prayer on our hearts, on our minds, maybe on our lips. You might not be praying it to God, but maybe there's, there's a sense of like um, longing. Uh, like, you know, man, I, I wish, I wish something were different. I, I wish I was a better person. I, I wish I looked like this shiny human being, this Photoshopped person that I'm seeing on Instagram. And so we scroll through social media first thing in the morning. Uh, Maybe there's a sense of guilt. Like, man, I I really should have not slept so long. Uh, I wish I was less grumpy in the morning. I wish I had more energy. Maybe there's a sense of regret. Man, I shouldn't have stayed up so late. I shouldn't have eaten that, drank that, watched that. You know, we we all wake up with some sort of prayer, some sort of longing for, for reality to be different than it is. So, one one keystone habit could be just starting your morning, framing your entire day with a prayer uh, given to God where the first conversation that you have is between your heavenly father who loves you, just sitting in his love and, and loving him in return. Not having all the answers or perfection, you know, not maybe not even having all the things that you think you need in order to feel worthy of being in god's presence but just sitting in that place with god stepping into the com- this community of holy love through prayer and and there are moments where you know honestly we just don't have enough faith to to pray on our own and that and that's where paul said, or james says pray for each other pray for each other sometimes we need to borrow faith from people who are further down the road from us or stronger than us. And that's okay. That's part of what we do. It's a keystone habit. And then James ends with this little vignette of Elijah. Elijah, and he says, this is kind of our model for prayer. He said, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And if you don't know the story of Elijah, it's okay, you can read about it in 2 Kings 17 and 18. I'll just give you the gist as we wrap up. Elijah was a prophet. He was used by God to speak hard words sometimes to leadership that had just completely abandoned God and they were destroying their nation, worshiping idols, vandalizing everything, every promise they had made to God, oppressing the poor. And so God, through Elijah, said, it's not gonna rain now for three and a half years. And this wasn't punishment. This was just accountability because they had already agreed with God that if, if we go crazy and sin uh, in Deuteronomy 28 and th- through 30, that, that uh, w- hold back the rain from us. And so God did for three and a half years. And then if you know the story, you know that Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to call down fire and, and God showed up and he called down fire and there's this massive revival. And then we see Elijah at the end of chapter 18 of 2 Kings sitting on this hill, sitting down on that sharp, crusty grass, that dry soil. And he has he's burdened and he's got his head down low and he's praying to God to send rain. And he does. And the rain comes, refreshes the land and brings back crops and prosperity. And we have someone who's even more righteous praying for us. And it all starts with this, that on the cross, Jesus is looking out at a sin-scorched world. He's feeling these thorns, these brambles dig into his skull and he says, Father, forgive them. He's praying for us. And then he says, it is finished. And it's so interesting to me, the gospel writers want us to know that a storm came and it rained once again. The prayer of a powerful man is, uh, of a righteous man is powerful, And effective. And for us, sick, weak, tempted sinners struggling to the cross, this is beautiful news. So, coming to God in confession and prayer, coming to one another in confession and prayer, will change everything. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we want to become like you, we want to become fully functional. We want to become happy, full of joy, healthy. We want to become uh, free, Lord, from our, the sin that entangles us and forgiven. So God, would, would you propel us to take these small steps, these practical steps into connecting with you through prayer and through confession. I pray that you would encourage my friends uh, here today and whatever they're facing, whatever trouble they're facing, that you would fill them with your strength and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.